Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm a recently traveled Bill Bohr. You are in central Pennsylvania. I was. Happy birthday, Dad. It was my dad's 80th birthday yesterday, and uh, we celebrated that. And Love you, Dad. Well, happy birthday to your dad. 80 years 80. strong. Yeah, I don't know if he would define it as strong, but he's hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, uh, he's, he's made it to 80. That's, that's, that's uh, no small feat. Michael Caine is like 84, and he's like, he just lost 30 pounds. He wants to, he says he wants to see his grandchildren hit 17. He's like, my wife saved me. I was the vodka, the cigarettes, <laughs> up to 70. <laughs> Credits his, his wife as, uh, I don't know if it's first wife or second wife. It's really uh, turning him around uh, uh, as far yeah, as I'm not sure what number lifestyle. Good for him. And uh, Chuck Berry died. Was it yesterday? He was 90 years old. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he, yeah, a li- I, I, living legend. I was listening to a little bit of a, you know, a kind of a, uh, you know, a tribute or whatever look about his career. And it, he, when he was singing all his songs about teenage girls, he was 30 something. So suddenly it was, as they were playing, it felt a little creepy, but uh, it was a more innocent time. It puts things in perspective. It yeah, certainly it does, uh, it does, does put things in, into some sort of perspective. So today, Bill, once more. We are reflecting more on, on love and what we've learned from Halik. And I'll tell you, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback on these podcasts, and we're appreciative of that. Yeah. And well, and I, and I think, uh, I mean, it does feel like we're really performing the service here by getting people, you know, familiar. And we know people, you know, you've heard from people, I've heard from people who are buying Halik's work, and he is a, um, a must-read for any of you who care about uh Theology in the, in the current time. Just yeah, I, I I do. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think intellectually, he's a, he's a great help. He's a he's a, yeah. a great yeah. help for. He has a. Um, Josh Redder said mentioned somewhere on, on social media that like he's a, like another Newbigin, a new Newbigin. And Leslie Newbigin had that character, which just could re- read science and philosophy and missiology and the- mm-hmm. and, philosophy and could integrate it all in a way that was timely. And I think Halleck is the same way. He just has such a capacity to synthesize so much, so uh, elegantly and, and thoughtfully. Yeah, yeah. And he actually somebody who was probably wiretapped. Well, because, yeah. Because yeah. by the KGB and the uh, Czech Secret Service. Yep. Uh, as opposed to someone else who was not. Um, exactly, but, exactly. a uh, passage that I was finding particularly interesting, and part of it is uh, in this chapter he's talking about the idea that God is nearly neither subject uh, nor object. And part of the problem in the post-Cartesian world that uh, we live in up till recently, um, and I guess we're still in the post-Cartesian world, but the— Once uh, Descartes dead. It, it's always post-Cartesian. There's a line in Charles Partey's— uh, book on Calvin, which is like his magnum opus. I mean, it's, I think it's Oxford Press. Or I mean, it's a, it's a, he is talking about Descartes and there's this footnote in the book. He says, you know, there was a debate at the university of Iowa when I was an undergraduate about, uh, the veterinary department wanted more, um, funding, but the philosophy department thought that that was misappropriating it. It should go more into philosophy uh, and the humanities in general, in particular, Philosophy and in, in in, at the end of the footnote, he says, See, the philosophers wanted to put Descartes before the horse. <laughs> I can't believe he put that in a footnote in his manual. I was just like, that, that, I That's that. a terrible that's awesome. joke. That's a but terrible but joke. It's awesome that he put it there. Uh, you know, if this, I, I, this little passage here, if <laughs> if this could be read to modernist and, and fundamentalist, it would they would both have to go over in their corners and rethink for, for many years. He's commenting on um, some implications of Charles Taylor's. 
work secular age. And he says this, even though today's Christians believe the same thing, that's in quotes, as in past centuries, they believe it differently. Even when they say the same words, they understand them differently. Even when they perform the same rituals in the same surroundings, those surroundings and those rituals play a different role in their lives than they did in the lives of their ancestors. I, I think that's a very profound, I mean, he says things so simply. He says, oh, well, yeah, that's exactly right. But, uh, boy, a lot of things that, uh, a lot of arguments and a lot of, you know, people who want to jettison the past and think like, uh, you know, they're creating something new. Uh, and then those who cling to a particular interpretation of something from a particular decade and a particular century and think that that in and of itself is the prism by which all things are viewed. I mean, in, in one kind of brief paragraph there, he says something that's pretty obvious for anyone who has studied, you know, the development of doctrine, who is anyone who's studied, you know, previous Christians in their context. Yeah, yeah, I think that that, I mean, I think historical consciousness is important. and I think you're right. I think that that, um, yeah, I mean, it is, it's interesting, I think, how people kind of, I was certainly looking for, they kind of absolutize or sort of, there's this sense that, that their own religious experience and experience of a religious communal life is just sort of like, normative through the ages right. and it's just not i mean like you know like all life you know marked by things are marked by change and evolution and devolution and, you know, right. and, and it's interesting now too we live in we've probably seen more change than any like in, in the shortest period of time than probably any species living in history yeah at least that's you know uh, uh well, just even think about world war one yeah. how different how in the beginning you got guys, and you got like flower uniforms and horses, wearing, and by then you got mustard gas, you know, you know like in, yeah, in machine they're, guns. They're wearing, and, yeah. hat, they're wearing felt hats, you know. <laughs> well, I still do that. Well, no, but that, you're not getting shot at. Not, no, and you're not. You're not getting. Sometimes you never know these right, days. But in other words, you know, they they realize maybe it would be a good idea to have a helmet on, as they're uh, having uh, millions and millions of tons of. Uh, Explosive blow up over their heads. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, all right, Chuck Berry was 90. Yeah, my dad turned 80. Just think about my dad was born in 1937, okay? Uh, the uh, United States Army was in a, a deplorable condition at that point. It was hardly, hardly, there still was cavalry. Uh, there was no nuclear uh, weapon. Um, and, uh, you know, you can go on and on to, to the kind of techno technology. You know, there was no television. Uh, and, um, you know, obviously it was early development, but, uh, you know, the things that we just take take for granted. I mean, uh, I, yeah, you probably, you, I know you don't remember this, but I remember carrying the cards, you know, to do a computer project with a computer that took up half the room uh, as part of a research. Oh, like a I, mainframe? Yeah. Kind of like, yeah, 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 that's, that's crazy. Kind of, yeah, yeah. So that was my, uh, that was in my college, college year. So anyway. I barely remember like my old iPod. Like I, I think I still have it over there. <laughs> I used to love that. My f first like big iPod. Oh man, I said, with the yeah. wheel just had the wheel. Yeah. So I mean, I think that's just all the tech. You know, we're just giving a couple goofy uh, illustrations, but yeah, I mean, the amount of technical scientific change that's happened. You know, at least the yeah, even to say well, I mean, let's let's face it. My grandfather um, 
the first time he saw an air, he tells a story. The first time he saw an airplane, uh, he was he and his brothers were running in, uh, in the woods, and they heard this horrible thing in the air, and they saw this flying creature in the air, and they ran into the woods in terror. And uh, that same man met astronauts who uh, who you know flew in the Apollo program. So uh, that's a pretty remarkable in his, in his lifespan. So we've we've seen remarkable things go on and continue to happen. And uh, and so this idea that when we talk about a particular doctrine or a particular idea um, that we can't not reproduce exactly what people were thinking in the 16th century, uh, the 14th century, the second century. Frankly, um, you know, it, we, it's hard pressed, you know, I mean, you're a student of Karl Barth. You know, you are, you are many decades removed from even being able to fully feel what he was, you know, the backdrop of his, of his theological project. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, and you know, here, I mean, Halleck in this chapter is talking about modernity and atheism and the God of Love. And he says that, um, he's talking about how modernity meant the rejection of this existence of a world beyond, or as Nietzsche mockingly termed it in his controversies with the world beyonders who sought in the spirit of Platonism and Christianity, that Platonism of the people to deny this world its true value. And he says, modernity is our world. For its part, postmodernity is self-criticism, but not a denial of modernity. There, but in its, there is no legitimate path back to pre-modernity. But it's, in its criticism of modernity, postmodernity can reveal something that moder- modernity remained blind to because of its fascination with human thought and achievement, the deeper dimension of reality. God, who had no place in modern autonomy, can find an even highly respectable place in the postmodern outlook, not somewhere on the fringe in the mysterious gloom of so far unexplored enigmas in occultism and and, and, esotericism, but in the very heart of reality, in its depths. God, not outside, but within. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating way to look at the time. Again, it's, it's another way of, uh, you know, what he called the Zacchaeus option, where it's it's not an escape, it's not a, uh, it's not a, even a, a full acceptance of everything everybody thinks, but it's an it's an engagement, it's a waiting, and it's an engagement with what's going on right now, and being able to see that God is is as present in the current reality uh, as God's always been present, and God is. Difficult to discover as difficult to discover now as God's ever always God the God that truly is, or the God that is not. You know. Yeah, yeah, and he even he talks about how how faith even says um, God is not received by us as a simple fact among facts or a thing among things. God is a mystery accessible only to faith through the gift of grace. Faith is infinitely more than the acknowledgement of God's existence on the basis of logical reflection on the work of creation spoken of by the Apostle Paul and by the dogma of the First Vatican Council, he goes on. Uh, and then there's a, interesting because he says that um, later in the chapter, he says, Augustine's I love, I want you to be leads us to another saying, namely Gabriel Marcel's splendid definition, to love someone is to tell them you will not die. Yes, ultimately, both of these definitions of love, which seem odd at first glance, link love with what is mysterious transcend with its mysterious transcendental source eternity within true love there is always a thirst for eternity and then he talks about sorrowful atheism i want god not to be 
This is not sorrowful, or it's not sorrowful atheism. I want God not to be, this is not sorrowful atheism. I would like to believe, but I'm not able to because there are wars, et cetera. Or naive positive atheism, positivist atheism, science hasn't discovered God, heaven is empty. Or even militant anti-clerical atheism, allergic to the church and the behavior of believers. I want God not to be his atheism that is aggressive in a different way, not only toward the church and religion, but towards God himself. God must not be. Mm. You know, it's interesting. I remember in Donald Lesh's Essentials of Evangelical Theology, which is a wonderful primer. I mean, Blush is an interesting guy. Yeah, I mean, he very, was, he was a very unique theological. He, he wrote a great book on Karl Barth's theology called um, "Jesus is Victor." I think it's excellent. Yeah. Uh, he's a really gifted thinker. But you know, it's and very American too. I mean, American in the sense of you know, kind of was it, it was. Doing theology in the American churches, more, right. you know, systematic theology in the American church. Right. Yeah, it, that reminds me a little bit of you know that that, that desire of that atheist is his uh, speculation of what what hell might be like would be you know for a person to deny ultimate reality, or I mean, a person who denies or cannot live in reality as some sort of degree of, of mental illness. So a person who you know after death. Uh, would still ultimately would deny the ultimate reality of God, then any kind of existence would be kind of like a like a psychiatric ward. He even sees a kind of kind of a you know eternal psychiatric ward where hopefully the cure of souls would help would would, uh, would help. But I, I, I what the reason that reminds me of that is is you know there is something about the denial of God that is to deny something essential of of a lot of what we intuit as human beings. Yeah, I think that you know, in 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 um, Brian Garish's dogmatic, brief dogmatic outline, I think it's called. I forget what the title is. It's not a catchy title, but it's like his short dogmatic kind of piece of theology. Senior kind of Calvin Schleiermacher scholar. He talks about the primal faith, where basically to live in human community and to live as a rational creature, you kind of have to believe that there's an ought to human behavior and also a kind of oughtness to the the world the physical order so that it, it plays by certain rules otherwise you have this kind of nihilism that you drift towards and so i i do think like it's you know this i this is like um it's funny because there's kind of antillian uh apologists are kind of annoying because they're they're such like dicks sometimes but the one thing that like is really interesting like doug wilson did this debate with christopher hitchens documentary it's great and they're talking about they, they wrote this uh they're the topic of the debate was is christianity good for the world and and wilson said well yes it, of course it is because uh without it you know your worldview is atheism material is just just um matter in motion well how would you get logic and rhetoric out of that well, you know so you have to actually christianity is good if for no other reason they allow it affords you the tools so you can borrow f- from its worldview to critique it <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is which is really the modern project. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. it it is. So I mean, that's like again, some of that some of that approach to defensive faith could go too far. It could be a circuit, but right. there is something too like this sense that 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 sometimes you have forms of unbelief that really borrow right. liberally from you know, they plunder the Egyptians. Can they, right. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's 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 interesting. So you know, I, I do like the idea that that. You know, taking a couple steps back, or first of all, getting God out of the object-subject divide, uh, and also at the same time, again, I'm reminded of uh, what J. Christian Becker used to talk about, uh, 
you know, the coherency versus the contingency. In other words, this was his approach to a particular passage. But what's the coherency of the message? And for him, that would be, all right, what is the uh, he used to call what's the punchline? What is the what is the core idea here? That it, it obviously those coherencies have transcended time, at least have transcended some three thousand years, because people are still reading the Bible with interest and are still finding that the Bible uh, is applicable to their life. Um, you know, I'm not a fundamentalist. I thoroughly, you know, I've, I've totally embraced, you know, good critis- critical approach to the scriptures. And the Bible is the central book of my life. I mean, it's it's still, it's the chief book that I'm interested in, not only because I'm a pastor, but because it's the chief thing that feeds my soul. And I, and, and, um, and knowing, and knowing what I know, uh, and uh, doesn't doesn't change that for me at all. Matter of fact, in some levels, uh, you know, having a critical uh, modern or postmodern view of how the scripture came to exist and have a more open understanding of the authority of scripture just makes it more alive for me. It actually some of the problems, artificial problems that the fundamentalism of uh, fundamentalism around me of my youth. Um, you know, those were false, false problems. Yeah, and, and, you, and I think it's important to note too that fundamentalism, as I think we're using, is a, is a modern create. I mean, you know, like, it is a creature of modernity. I mean, Absolutely. they're not pre-modern fundamentalists. I mean, you know, it's it's. I mean, people believe different things, and don't get me wrong, but like, and certain beliefs that because of modern science or and other disciplines, we might look at it a little differently, but. Like, even the Orthodox, you know, say reformers in the 16th century that were, were theologically, they weren't fundamentalists. The way they thought about, again, Charles Partee said that, you know, Calvin and Luther thought the scriptures were perfectly reliable. And so, some of their followers turned that around and said the Bible is reliably perfect. And so I think that's a huge difference. Right. I mean, Luther had no problem questioning whether or not certain books in the canon should be in. Yeah. Which shows there's a different kind of fluidity going on. Right. Uh, yeah, and, I, and again, I think uh, you're you're absolutely right. Liberals and fundamentalists have created each other, and that's why. And sometimes, that this when even some of the arguments that still float around within different circles, that's why they, you know, if they would just take two steps back, they would realize you've, you're missing our century. And uh, that's certainly not the only reason. It may not even be the primary reason people stop going to church. But none of that controversial stuff has helped anybody in their faith. Yeah, I mean. It- Polemicists, pol- I mean, I guess you know there are times we need polemicists, but you know, it's, well, that's different. I mean, it, no, I'm okay with polemics, can, but it can be, it can quickly become acerbic. It can quickly become reductive. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, when you're when in the when in the uh, desire to make your point, it closes your mind. It makes you extra biblical or unbiblical, or makes you go beyond uh, what we can really know or should say, and, and make things. Uh, Absolute that that there are no bases for them. Yeah, I mean that's 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 and almost that always happens. I mean, uh, gosh, I just what is I, it's uh, Roland's Roland Banton's um, you know his classic early biography of Luther. Yeah, yeah. And one at one point he says it's a shame Luther lived beyond thirty. <laughs> now, I, don't, <laughs> I don't I don't agree with. I mean, who's to say? But uh, I'm sure you know people around him were glad he lived beyond thirty. But his whole point was uh, in the in the course of becoming. Wanting to be a reformer and wanting to bring genuine pastoral change, and in the course of the years of polemics and battle, 
some of the worst things he ever came up with was he wrote after 30 and things that have um are not very edifying and some of them have done extreme damage and that's true of, it's true of not just of luther but almost everyone it had been good of augustine to stop writing the last <laughs> couple years of his life <laughs> yeah i once heard tim keller say in a sermon he was saying something like you know if you're sitting here let's say like maybe there's something in the bible that you know you're struggling with to accept you know intellectually or something. It's like think about all the things your grandparents believed about a host of things, science or race, or and now that you think are absurd, like what what things will you think are absurd? Your grandkids think you thought were absurd, and what if like some of these things that they're keeping you from faith are things that um, your grandchildren are going to find ridiculous anyway? Like down your doubts a little bit, but I think there's something there in that you know not being too parochial about our presuppositions. And it can also prevent us from seeing what's really going on. Uh, you know, take the, vir- the, the idea of the virgin birth. Okay. Um, now, you know, it's only mentioned in Luke and in Matthew. Mark isn't concerned at all about anything that happened to Jesus before his baptism. And in John's gospel, I mean, John starts with the preexistent Christ, but John refers to Jesus as the son of Joseph, or at least the people talking about him say, you know, Jesus, the son of Joseph. Okay. Now, the virgin birth, the virginity of of uh, let's just leave it for a second. What Matthew and, and Luke were after, but in the second century, virginity was a was a radical saying no to the pagan Roman family values. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, by the fourth century, it becomes part of this. The virgin ideal becomes kind of normative Christianity. Uh, so it takes on a different thing there. You know, post Augustine, with him, you know, connecting, um, you know sex and original sin and all that, then it becomes a different kind of necessity that Mary was a virgin that didn't exist in the first century. Um, now, you know, what's, what's really interesting to me, if you get away from all the controversy, and then, then in the 20th century, late 19th century, 20th century, it becomes the battleground that, you know, you either believe in supernatural or you either believe in miracles or you don't believe in miracles. All right. Now, what, what we all might be missing Okay, and, and I'm not and I'm not making any value judgment on any of those arguments because that was it made it was important during the, each time. But if you stop and think, and I was thinking about this uh, this past week, uh, I preached a sermon called um, um, uh, "Nasty Women," the nasty women of the Bible, or women's work, and uh, and you you start thinking about let's let's start listing women from the Bible: Tamar, Rahab the harlot, Lot's daughters, uh, Ruth. How did Ruth? How did Ruth meet Boaz? <laughs> Esther, you, you go on and on. Okay. And uh, some of those uh, women who did compromising things, they end up in the genealogy of Christ. Luke and Matthew are saying that, you know, it's a miraculous conception. But let's say that, let's take one step behind. What in the world was God thinking by starting the whole thing off by putting this young girl at risk in a hyper-traditional society by having her and thus her child live under a scandal yeah. in the beginning. And, and what's interesting about that text is it's the anti-type in the sense of all the all the miraculous birth stories where barrenness is overcome. It's women who want a child and who, who will enhance their social and religious status to tell, you know, it's, right. this, this will problematize her, her life, you know, and it's not, and she's not trying to have a child. I mean, no. It does say, tell you something, though, about the gratuitous nature of redemption in that, you know, it's. It, I, I think it's a powerful sign. You know? I think it is. And I think if you take away the supernatural 
I mean, if, if you take away the supernatural dimension of why Jesus had to be born of a virgin or not the, the theological reason, for our time, this, the idea that the scandal of the cross yeah. actually begins is, is the scandal the of, birth, the, yeah. of the Annunciation. Yeah. And that suddenly has a whole, I mean, you know, if you think about what are the critical issues of our time, you know, a, a displaced pregnant uh, mother, uh, a woman of questionable you know, background, you know, and all kinds of things. I mean, it is a... You know, we actually did do a good podcast on this. We did. A couple months ago. Yeah, but the thing is... It was good. It was something about the 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 absurdity of it. Yeah. Is even, I mean, uh, Tertullian, the great uh, uh, second and early third century uh, Latin theologian, one translation of his famous phrase is, it, I, because it's absurd, I believe. In part because... It's absurd. It doesn't. You can't. It doesn't make sense. And on one, on the front level, the virgin birth seems to be this really strange strategy. If you take away some of the mythology or take away some of the theological reasons that we don't need anymore, and at the other, on the other hand, it it totally fits into the whole salvation program story that God is constantly uh, coming at us from the ground up. God is constantly coming at us in the stranger. Uh, you know, the first person in Luke's gospel that's referred to ever loving Christ is the very sinful woman anointing his feet. And so it may be <laughs> that this is one of the chief punchlines of the whole salvation story. We know that. And by getting out of our own kind of controversies and kind of seeing this doctrine through the eyes of our sensibilities today, we might actually have some new insight. Um, and it's not new. People have known this before. But it's a pretty amazing thing to try to, to hear it and be, be free enough to hear it without all the controversy. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting as he closes this chapter by saying he's talking about people. Um, he says, you know, maybe there are those who are totally convinced of God's existence, whether they inherited their religious certainties from their forebears or were born into a setting where they imbibed them with their mother's milk, so to speak or whether they arrived at them through personal conversion, consider, consider that the longing for God that I want you to be is irrelevant for them. Perhaps they consider what I write to be useful for beginners who are still seeking, who have gotten no further than the anteroom of faith, whereas they are much further ahead. They've already found and possess their reward, a firm place in the inner sanctum of the church and faith. I passionately disagree, he says, with such a concept of religion. A faith that considers it that it no longer needs the flame of yearning is deathly cold. If it considers that it no longer needs to set out on a further journey of seeking and asking, it is paralyzed. If religious conviction does not comp comprise passionate consent, if I know you are is not enlivened by the longing of love, by that I want you to be, then faith turns into ideology. It thereby loses its unmistakable spicy saltiness and is no longer of any use but only fit to be thrown out and trampled underfoot as it hap as happens to it frequently and rightly so. Yeah. We are, we are crushed maybe in order that we may love. Yeah.